Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. Let's get Brexit done. My administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country. Uh, just before we start the show, I need to let you know that uh, when we recorded this, which was Thursday, Thursday the 3rd, was somewhat of a very busy news day. You'll realise that because halfway through the show, Clint actually updates us when we're talking about Marjorie Taylor Green. But things have moved on even more since then. So, um, Clint, what exactly is the update? So shortly after we finished recording yesterday... The House co- completed the process on uh, whether to uh, drop Marjorie Taylor Greene from her committee assignments. She had been assigned to the Education and Labor Committee and the Budget Committee, um, but her statements on uh, school shootings attracted a lot of attention. Um, so a lot of folks thought that she shouldn't be serving on uh, on Education Committee that oversees schools. Uh, about 7 o'clock last night, uh, the House voted, and by a vote of 230 to 199, they did dismiss her from her committees. Um, this is pretty unusual. Uh, there have been cases in the past, as recently as 2019, where the party leadership can dismiss members from, um, from committee assignments. Uh, that happened with uh, Steve King from Iowa after he made some comments on, on white nationalism and white supremacy. But this is the first time uh, in, in certainly the modern era or well, contemporary times when uh, the House has had to take action. What is the immediate ramification of this, do you think? That's hard to tell because I think the Republican Party in the House right now is, is kind of, uh, you know, like some mad cats in a small bag, um, if that kind of analogy uh, works. Um, you had 11 votes here from Republicans uh, to dismiss uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene from her committee assignments. Those are, those are different votes than, um, than the, the, voter, the Republican voters in the House who uh, voted to impeach Donald Trump. There were, there were only three people who voted for both impeachment and to censure uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene. Adam Kinzinger is kind of the most prominent of those. He's, he's been a pretty prominent um, Republican who's pushing back on the Trump wing of the party. 
Um, you know, you saw the Cheney vote. Uh, the, the the Republican conference in the House voted on whether to retain Cheney, uh, Representative Liz Cheney, as the conference chair, the, the third highest position in the party. And that was a vote that was by secret ballot. And she got um, 145 votes to stay versus 61 votes to leave. So you have a really strong contingent that wants to maintain the establishment leadership. You have you have a, obviously a significant portion of that vote, though, that was also looking to drop Cheney for probably a more Trumpy candidate. But at the same time, you also had eight members out there who voted to uh, punish Marjorie Taylor Greene because her comments were so beyond the pale, but did not vote to impeach Donald Trump. So I think that there's just a lot of, I don't know if you want to call it confusion. I don't know if you want to call it just people kind of lashing out whatever makes sense in the moment to moment. Uh, but the the implications are, I think, a little bit hard to read right now, but they definitely point to a Republican Party that is in a little bit of chaos. Last question from me uh, before we start the show. Do you think that if that vote had been in private, it would have been different again? I think the Cheney vote indicates that that would probably be the case. The House doesn't do a lot of secret ballots. It happens so infrequently, I'm not even sure what the uh, what the procedure is for that, but it's so simple for a, a very small number of members to, to demand that votes be public that there's basically never a, a private vote. But I think the Cheney vote indicates that, you know, there are 145 Republicans who who are establishment Republicans, and I think you see reports of this, um, members who are very clear um, about the, their need to support the president for their own political, and in some cases, they feel their own personal safety. Thank you, Clint. Now, folks, uh, on with uh, yesterday's chaotic and fractious show. Hello and welcome to The Atlantic, the show where we look at the news and the views from one side of the Atlantic from the perspective of the other. I'm Royfield Brown, who's just gone out and had a lovely walk around Oakland. Uh, today we are joined by writer and journo Emma Burnell in London, actor, head of the Daleks, Terry Malloy in East Anglia, Mick Wright, the editor of The Conquest of the Useless, the media criticism newsletter in Norwich in the UK, Laura Babcock, TV pundit in Hamilton in Ontario in Canada, Clint Losey, who is an ex-capital staffer in Washington DC, Eric Marcus, who's from the Making Gay History podcast in New York, who sees himself as a senior citizen in, in that community, and bringing up the rear, but by no means the least of the posse, Jared Kobeck, acclaimed author in Los Angeles, Jane Jun, Professor of Political Science in Los Angeles. We have a call from a listener in Ontario. Hello, Mid-Atlantic. This is Raleigh Astrom calling from Burlington, Ontario, Canada. I just wanted to reference the annual Global Democracy Index published this week by The Economist. 167 countries are ranked based on 60 indicators, which place them in categories from full democracy at the top, down through flawed democracy, hybrid regimes, and authoritarian regimes at the bottom. Of interest to the Mid-Atlantic panel, Canada ranks 5th, Britain 16th, and the US 25th. The four countries ranked ahead of Canada are Norway, Iceland, Sweden, and New Zealand. In spite of every U.S. politician I've heard claim that the U.S. is the best democracy in the world, it now ranks in the flawed democracy category. How can it be then that these top-ranked countries with so many of their quote-unquote socialist programs in place rank higher? 
I recently read that only 6% of legislation passed in the U.S. is due to public demand or pressure. The rest is driven by special interest groups slash lobbyists or is politically motivated. Is the will of the people and common good for all just a fantasy in the U.S.? So there. I'll leave you with a few things to chew on. Enjoy the discussion. Uh, one of the great things uh, which you can do at Mid-Atlantic, and you're starting to do it slowly but surely, is to go on to midatlanticshow.com and to hit the uh, voice tab, the uh, speak to a speak pipe button over on the right-hand side. It's a great way of you either responding to something you've heard on a previous show or to address an issue which is close to you and get to one of the panel or some of the panel to answer it. Now, first off, this is a Canadian giving a kick in to America and its vaunted sense that it's the beacon of democracy. So Jane Jun, I'm going to quickly come to you, then Eric Marcus, you're next. The United States being 25 on a number of indicators up to 60 tells you that something is amiss. I think that's not news to any of us that something is amiss. But nevertheless, I think this... With respect to the specific question that the viewer or the listener asks, an exceptionally good one, has to do with the fact that the United States in the last several decades has created a system under which late capitalism, neoliberalism has been relatively unfettered. And so to the extent that I'll just give you the example of the Citizens United decision, which treats corporations as if they have speech rights like individuals. And so when that happens, and when one remembers just how powerful corporations are with respect to providing money to candidates, then it becomes much more obvious why it is the case that legislation doesn't actually fit. Legislation in the federal Congress, but also in state legislatures, doesn't necessarily match what it is that is the will of the people. Emma, then you, Eric, um, should we be crowing in Britain? Because we've, we've done better than the Americans. They were a little bit behind our Canadian cousins. Uh, no, we shouldn't be crowing. 16th isn't good enough at all. But I did want to, I want to address one specific um, line from that call, which is how come this country with uh, all these countries with so many socialist policies uh, are being democratically elected? It seems like such a shock to the caller because they're popular. They're popular in the countries where they're popular. And that's, you know, that, that is literally democracy. And it's just so bizarre to me that you'd ask that in that way, but not ask why... Um, capitalism is uh, and the ultimate capitalist country is 25th and not think that that's exactly the same bloody thing you know it's unpopular it's not great there are bigger problems with american democracy than whether it um elects capitalists or not but it goes back to the problem of the system is skewed to elect capitalists i think he was being somewhat sarcastic because he's a canadian i think he was making the point <laughs> he, no, he was being sarcastic. He completely knew, knew the reason why. Eric, you, you had your hand up as well. Yes, uh, Canadian sarcasm is very subtle. It's ever present. We're not that nice. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's true. They're not that nice. So um, the U.S. system was fatally flawed from the beginning. It, it, this is not a real democracy. Just for example, Wyoming has 500,000 people living in the entire state. They have two senators. New York State has 25 million people. We have two senators. So the system was was rigged from the beginning. Um, we don't deserve to be. I'm surprised we're even 25th. Biden won by 7 million votes. Trump almost won because of the, the Electoral College. But yeah, we're fatally flawed. I think that that ultimately the U.S. system will, will fail. So there you go, Roly Astrum. Hopefully that is some level of uh, a commentary on your great call. And don't forget, folks, go on to midatlanticshow.com. Hit the little voice 
speak pipe tab over on the right hand side you can get a message over to us and we'll play it out in a future show now back on with today's episode in a week that has seen over a million people in the uk receive covid jabs in just two days we are going to worry about the future of the republican party and whether now we should call it the party of QAnon. The House is set to vote tomorrow on whether to strip the Republican Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene of her committee assignments because of her past support for wild, reckless, and dangerous conspiracy theories, including QAnon. Today, Democrats on the House Rules Committee gave the go-ahead for the vote and said they must act because Republicans are not taking any action. Congresswoman Greene has also promoted truly appalling things from implying that 9-11 is a hoax saying school shootings were false flag operations and spreading anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, including one about a Jewish space laser being the cause of wildfires in California. If this isn't the bottom line, I don't know where the hell the bottom line is. The House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy released a statement today condemning Green's past comments, but he says the re resolution to remove her from committees is a distraction for the Congress. Strikingly, the House GOP is also deciding whether they'll remove the Congresswoman Liz Cheney from her leadership role as the number three Republican in all the House after she voted to impeach the former president. A source tells NBC News that Representative Cheney refused to apologize for impeaching the former president during a reportedly raucous closed-door GOP meeting that's ongoing now. NBC's Sahil Kapoor now. Sahil, Republicans are going to have to be on the record tomorrow with this vote. Should the GOP turn its back on Marjorie Taylor Greene? Or should they just say that it's a big tent? And if so, how big should a big tent be? Clint Losey, coming over to you first, sir. Should the Republicans ditch QAnon? They absolutely should. I think that's incredibly obvious. Will they, though, is the good question. Um, and they are, they are, in fact, as we record this, um, the House of Representatives is voting on some uh, on measures about whether to strip Representative Green of Georgia, the most prominent QAnon member of Congress, of her committee assignments for her crazy pants views. And it'll succeed, but it might just very well be a party line vote. It's, it's unclear how many Republicans are actually going to do that. And, um, you know, the, the Republicans are also uh, you know, trying to oust Liz Cheney, who's a very straightforward, hardcore conservative. So how, how big is the tent is, is not really the question. It's, it's more about how willing they are to tolerate some pretty extreme views for the sake of, um, I, I guess, what they consider to be electoral safety. Um, and it's, it's, it's high time they stood up for something that was a little bit more important than that. Okay, if you have, let's say, 20% of Americans kind of behind those views, can we say that they are truly abnormal? They might be extreme, but they're not that abnormal. And then if 20% of Americans are kind of believing this, shouldn't that be represented within Congress politically? Laura Babcock. When you talked about the size of the tent and you've, we've seen more conservative Republicans, sort of the old school leadership saying the tent can't be that big, including Mitt Romney, who came out with that comment. But what I thought was an incredible shot across the bow from a branding perspective was when Nancy Pelosi decided to label the leader of, uh, of the House with a Q California instead of R California. In other words, saying, forget it, you are now part of the Q party. Uh, and then she doubled down on Twitter like an hour ago and said, if the Q fits, right? 
right? So, I mean, if they do not expel QAnon and anyone associated with it out of the party as fast as possible, right down the ballot, uh, and in coming into the midterm elections, they are going to have the Democrats brand them as the Q party. They're going to lose, you know, the grand old party stature. They are going to be relegated to the fringes. And so, I mean, already the Democrats are making hay of this. They would be smart to route it as fast as they can if they're going to survive. Has Republicans are confronting courts, as Clint said, uh, basically uh, to punish two prominent congresswomen. So obviously we've talked about Marjorie Taylor. We have also uh, the moves against Liz Cheney, which were actually faced down. Now, Liz Cheney is obviously the third most powerful Republican in Congress. And there was a, what, a three to one majority of, Repub- of the Republican caucus that basically backed her to stay within her seat. Doesn't this really sum up the, the existential crisis that the party is going through? We have Liz Cheney, a re- an establishment Republican, and then with Marjorie Taylor Greene, who is um, kind of out there expressing views which most of us would say are extreme, but a lot of Americans are behind. Isn't this fundamentally the narrative of at least the next 12 months of the Republican Party? Mick Wright. The Republican Party stopped being the grand old party sometime around Richard Nixon, right? The thing from this party is a, is, is a corrupt and dangerous party for many, many years. Liz Cheney now is allowed to be framed as a moderate because the Overton window has shrunk so narrow in the US, it's like a broken cat flap. The notion, like, sorry, yeah, okay, Q are mad. Yeah, fine. But so were the Cheney Republicans. She is a dynastic member of of the political class from her father who was a who was a vice president in an administration that were involved in wholesale torture um burnt a many democratic norms so i'm kind of like baffled by the way that we we allow these things to push us further across and go oh well these cute people are very mad we need to get back to the moderate uh, positions of liz cheney but surely right we have to acknowledge that she doesn't believe that Jewish people were firing lasers into California from space. But her wing of the Republican Party do their anti-Semitism, their racism, their homophobia, all within the norms of the political system. It still stinks. Don't allow them to use the more nutty fringes to make themselves seem like the centre. They're not the centre. Jared Kobeck, where is the, the sensible reasonable wing of the Republican Party. If what Mick is saying is that we should we should damn them all, aren't we just submitting to more partisan polarization in politics? Yeah. But <laughs> but I mean I agree with again, I find myself in the position of following Mick and agreeing with everything he said. He's absolutely right. I mean one of the things about this moment which is so peculiar which was peculiar about the Trump presidency is that we seem more concerned with table manners than we do with the actuality of what these people do and what these positions enact upon the world, right? Jared, aren't table manners somewhat yes. important in terms of you need to be the way the American political system is constructed is that there needs to be some level of bipartisanship to, for anything to happen. So with that in mind, you need to believe that your ad political adversary comes to the argument in good faith. 
that they do not believe that you are a pedophile, that you have children in, in, in base, <laughs> that you aren't a Jewish cabal who have lasers rained down on the Golden State, etc. You have to have certain norms, call it politeness, call it civility, call it namby-pambyism, but whatever. You have to believe that your political adversaries come at the argument in good faith. Eric Marcus. Um, let me just get my laser, which I keep in the cabinet behind me as a good Jew, a gay Jew, no less. The, what the Republican Party has become is not a party that you want to sit at the table with and have lunch. You're talking about a world that doesn't exist anymore. If we talk about that party as being that, that we need to behave ourselves at the table with them, I think we go down a very dangerous path. They need to be they need to be isolated and cauterized. I'm not calling for the kinds of things that, that Green has talked about, but they need to deal with their shit in their party. And the Democratic Party needs to get rid of the filibuster and make the world a better place so that the people who are on the fringes join with the Democrats to do good things for the people. My gut is to agree with you, but the political calculus told us just in November that what, 43, 42% of Americans are lined up with the Republican Party. So you can't just cleave yourself off from that amount of Americans. Now, Dee Perkinson, are you actually with us, sir? Emma Burnell. I think if you were a Muslim, you wouldn't have particularly enjoyed the table manners of the Cheneys. I think it's really uh, important that we reiterate what Mick said. Just because things have gone more surfacely loopy doesn't mean that they weren't really, really bad. And the idea that the Bush administration acted in good faith is completely wackadoodle. I'm sorry, it just is. You know, we went to war in, for completely falsified reasons. Massive amount of contracting happened that was stuffing the pockets of um, Bush mates. I tend to take the modern iteration of it back to Newt Gringich. So therefore, since I was 15, and as we discussed slightly earlier, uh, I'm over 39 now. <laughs> <laughs> all right. At what point, though, at what point do we all stop going backwards and talking about New Newt Gringich changing the language in American politics and then that being amplified by right-wing talk hosts uh, and by uh, Fox News, etc. And do we say that if you disavow the conspiracy theories which are wrecking societies, whether it's in the UK or the US, and maybe even Canada, if you disavow that, it gives us some basis to sit down and talk because that is starting to destroy our economy. You have Congress people wanting to take guns onto the floor of Congress. What, at what point do we say redemption to be not necessarily forgiven, but to admit past sins is really important in politics? Clint Losey. I, I was just going to say that it's not enough to just disavow QAnon and, and the other very crazy stuff. Um, there, there's a whole, uh, you know, call it political polarization or whatever you will. There's a whole uh, attitude, um, particularly how Republicans approach lawmaking and Congress and politics at this point. It's, it's very extreme. Um, and I just don't think you can work with that. And I, I think that they are working in bad faith. 
um, or they're working very cynically in in a way that's that's very harmful. So it's, it's really not enough to, to disavow QAnon. I think QAnon and the conspiracy theory side of things, you can you should just ignore it and let it wither on the vine. I think that the thing that you need to really focus on um, is, you know, demonstrating that some power politics from the Democrats might actually wake the Republicans up to the fact that they need to be partners, uh, not just bullies. Marjorie Taylor Smith gave a speech yesterday to the close ranks of Republican congressmen, of which she, congresspeople, sorry, of which she did get a standing ovation from some members of the caucus. And she did actually apologise in private for some of the comments which she's been attributed to in the past. Is it important that she now does a mere culpa on Fox, Newsmax, etc., and really does distance herself from her previous comments? Uh, Royfield, I just want to jump in. She she gave a speech on the House floor not not but um, an hour ago, um, disavowing QAnon. Ah, okay, all right. Uh, you're you're way ahead of me. I went for a walk before we uh, did this. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about that, then, Clint? Uh, certainly your walk was more pleasant. Um, but, uh, she did, uh, she did, uh, basically as the house was getting ready to go and vote on whether or not she should be stripped of her committee assignments. Um, she, she spoke for about 10 minutes. Um, it, it was a fairly wide ranging speech. I don't even know that, you know, she was, I think she was speaking from the heart a lot of it. Um, you know, she had to admit that school shootings are real and that, that the September 11th attacks are real. And so, you know, that's just kind of where we are. Um, in terms of that movement, it reminds me of um, in 2010, Christine O'Donnell, the, the Senate candidate in Delaware, had to uh, confirm to the public that she was not a witch. So, you know, there's a there's a long line of crazy um, that kind of goes through there. Um, she spent a lot of time blaming tech companies. She spent a lot of time talking about cancel culture. Um, she reiterated a bunch of Republican um, talking points, particularly Christian Republican talking points um, that you could you could pick out of a Facebook post in in red state Facebook, pretty much anywhere. Um, she went after the Democrats for wanting to condemn and crucify her. Um, and then her her ending crescendo was that the, the media, the mainstream media, is just as guilty as QAnon uh, for warping the views of Americans. So. so she didn't disavow anything, essentially. She she did nominally say that that, Q, that QAnon isn't real and that she no longer believes that. But that's one of those things about QAnon is that I have no doubt that on those message message boards out there that there are people talking um, about how this is just that that she's still with them and that this is all part of the dance. And you know they know that she's they should they know that she's a true believer and and she's she's just doing what she has to do to to you know infil- infiltrate the deep state or whatever. It's, it's you know the the goalposts just move every single time. She just used a messaging platform and got her message out even on this podcast, right? Much of what she said is the same damaging, delusional, anti-democratic crap that we want to expunge from the United States. She just worked them again. Yep. This is why I'm concerned, right? <laughs> I'm not Pollyannic. I don't think the Republicans are good people working in good faith, at least but this stuff is really insidious and leads to insurrection and, and violence on the streets. Mm. Green defended herself on Twitter. So this is pre-speech on the floor of Congress, uh, claiming that the Democratic Party's efforts to remove her from the House and Labour and Education Committee were an attack on her identity as a white woman, wife, mother, Christian, conservative and business owner. Isn't that basically the, the nucleus of a slogan for the new Patriot Party? White 
married, conservative and Christian. Eric Marcus. You left off guns, Royfield. Go along with motherhood and all those other good things that she expresses. I think the only thing to do is to marginalize her as much as possible. I hope the Democrats go ahead and strip her of her committees and I hope she's voted out of office. I don't have much confidence in that. Um, but I think these are these these apologies mean nothing. And she didn't, did she disavow her belief about the lasers and Jews and, and forest fires in California? She's dangerous and she doesn't belong in the house. And she's not the only one. There are quite a few of them who shouldn't be there, but they are. Good answer, sir. Now, off the back of that, I'm going to pivot to Canada. Canada's list of terrorist organizations has swelled to 73. The federal government added 13 new groups today, including the Proud Boys. Some of its members played key roles in the storming of the U.S. Capitol last month. Public Safety Minister Bill Blair said the list can be a powerful tool to fight extremism. Listings can help support criminal investigations and facilitate the laying of terrorism-related charges against perpetrators and supporters of terrorism. They also help block the flow of financial resources to terrorist groups when such groups use Canada's financial systems. And that's because when an entity is placed on the list, banks and financial institutions can freeze their assets. It's also a criminal offense with severe penalties for Canadians to knowingly deal with the assets of a listed entity. Listings can help thwart the efforts from sympathizers in Canada by criminalizing certain support activities, including those related to terrorist travel, training, and recruitment. And they can also support the denial or revocation of a Canadian organization's charitable status if it means connections, connections to a listed entity. And it can, of course, make it easier to remove hateful online postings in the context of that extremism. Let's bring in the CBC's Evan Dyer. He's in Chelsea, Quebec. So, Evan, let's talk about uh, the Proud Boys uh, specifically because, I mean, they yeah. are that is really what's, you know, making news uh, today that we are the first country in the world to put them uh, on a terrorist entity uh, list like that. What's the significance of it? Yeah, of the 13 groups, really, it is the one that stands out. Mostly, actually, these are groups affiliated with Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State and those kinds of groups make up the majority of groups on Canada's terrorism listing. Uh, there are a couple of other neo-Nazi groups, I shouldn't say other, I should say neo-Nazi groups named uh, who I think are pretty non-controversial. They're both explicitly violent groups that have advocated the use of violence for, for years publicly. So no surprises there. The Proud Boys, however, uh, stand out as a group that, first of all, deny being a white supremacist group, uh, but also perhaps more significantly because uh, I think that few people would today dispute they've been involved in violence. They have been involved at least in uh, street fighting in the United States and in the attack on the US Capitol building. Uh, there is still some question about whether this decision has been tainted by politics. Canada this week has categorized the Proud Boys who kind of run along with these QAnon wackadoo crazy bunch. Um, they categorize them as a terrorist organization, describing it as neo-fascist and uh, a body of people who that engage in political violence. And they put them alongside ISIS and Al-Qaeda. Uh, Laura, how problematic is far-right extremism in Canada? 
It's problematic enough that the government acted swiftly. I mean, part of the reason for the designation of the Proud Boys was their involvement in the insurrection on January 6th. And we saw right after what happened in January 6th, there was a, a member of parliament who threw out, or from the Bloc Québécois, who threw out a kind of a insinuation about one of Trudeau's cabinet members. And Trudeau said, like, no dog whistles, none of this stuff. There's no, no appetite for it. All Canadians should call it out. And then they followed it up by adding this to the list. And I have to say it was Jagmeet Singh from the New Democratic Party who led the charge. But imagine this after a conversation about the level of democracy in the U.S. off the top of the call. It was unanimous. Every single member of parliament unanimously agreed to put the Proud Boys into a terrorist designation. And what's so significant about this, it was they were one of 13 groups included in the 73 that Canada has under this designation. But what Canada didn't do was they didn't do what you're talking about in the U.S. There's a lot of talk around a domestic terrorist uh, you know, law in the U.S. to be able to charge people from the insurrection with more serious crimes, et cetera. Canada didn't kind of separate it out. It just terrorism. Right. And and what's making people so happy about that from a human rights point of view is that they didn't kind of dilute the definition to a point where other groups that are protesting or are trying to speak up would somehow be more vulnerable. Uh, they said, you know, they made the Proud Boys met the criteria for terrorism, period. And so that allows the Canadian government to cut them off all kinds of ways. Right. You can't even buy one of their T-shirts now because any money going into a terrorist organization is a criminal offense. So what they did, I think, uh, hopefully will be a model for other countries. And the fact that it was unanimous just goes to show you, Royfield, how serious the problem is in Canada. We benefit a little bit by watching our big brother and best friend go through this stuff. And maybe we have a smaller population and we can, you know, we don't have quite a, a split political system so we can act on things faster. But you know what? They're terrorists, terrorists, period. And they should be. Uh, and it was it was received with great applause across the country. Let me tell you, I haven't heard a single person upset about it. Right. From Canada and the Proud Boys, you moved to Britain. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Sir Keir Starmer's Labour Party was in chaos on Thursday after the leader was forced to deny reports the party was attempting to rebrand as more patriotic. A leaked internal report commissioned by Labour advised the party to make more use of the union flag, to dress more smartly at events such as Memorial Sunday and attempt to appeal to veterans. A spokesperson for the party denied the report's specific recommendations were Labour's strategy, though stressed the party believes in patriotism. To add to Labour problems. Earlier this week, a video of Sir Keir was unearthed from 2005, in which the Labour leader said he supported abolishing the monarchy. In the election to become Labour leader last year, Starmer said he supported the monarchy, though would downsize it. After the leaked report was revealed, Labour figures criticised the party's moves to become more patriotic. Labour MP Clive Lewis said, It's not patriotism, it's fatherlandism, and accused Starmer of pandering to the nativist right. The Labour Party has defended its renewed focus on British values and uh, waving the Union Jack. Can the party be overtly patriotic without risking xenophobia? Terry Malloy, what do you reckon, sir? Listen to what's been going on so far. This is all part of the same package, really. I mean, this, this goes back to Reagan and Thatcher and the beginning of neoliberalism. And we're seeing that going through where nationalism is the key. You know, if you're not a patriot, if you're not nationalistic, you are therefore against all of that and you suddenly become a, a, a Jew in space with a laser. Um, and um, to my mind, the only way to, to get rid of this is to, is to as Thatcher said, <laughs> the only thing she said that was of any decent was remove the oxygen of publicity. Don't allow them. Well, don't engage with them on social media don't engage with but them terry, um, but, but terry but but terry you, you might have slightly misunderstood me there, there's a document that the labor party needs to embrace uh patriotism british values and the union jack to help it win back those northern towns which it lost in the last general election so basically what they're trying to do is detoxify um elements of overt uh, nationalism to say it's all right to say that you're British and you like to wave the Union Jack. They're saying let's reclaim it. Let's be left of centre politically. This isn't just the purview of the right, Terry. But the, it is such a toxic thing now. Patriotism. You know, when you look at things, you know, James Booth assassinated Lincoln was a patriot. Guy Fawkes was a patriot. He's trying to blow up Parliament. It's your definition of patriot, and it's become so smeared with nationalism at the moment, and the flag has become so smeared. It's going to be a very difficult thing for the Labour Party to disengage themselves from that and say, you've got to make a stand and say, this is what we stand for. Now you embrace it. And they're doing it purely to try to appease the red wall voters. Well, there's the whole range of people who will say, actually, England is better than patronism and the flag. It's such a diverse community. Terry, though, aren't we tacitly admitting, though, that... Uh, and we talked about the Republican Party being a, a wide tent. The Labour Party is a wide tent. But what it hasn't done 
in recent elections is speak to socially conservative Brits who are economically left of centre. And that's what they're trying to do with this uh, new initiative to say, we can do a little bit of flag waving, but we're not xenophobic. Uh, Mick Wright, you were getting agitated by what I said. Go, Emma. Given several of the things that I've said on this podcast, how many of the people here, even those of you who've met me or been on a podcast with me once, would ever describe me as socially conservative? (laughs) I'm not socially conservative, but I do consider myself slightly surprisingly, slightly surprised in myself as a patriot. And when I try and think about and unpack what I mean by that, I mean, I cheer on England at, at vague football games, even though I you know, barely watch football. And three quarters of the country at least think patriotism is a positive value. Now, you can try and tell three quarters of the country they're wrong, or you can find a way, as I have, to be patriotic and socially liberal and progressive and forward and socialist. And the way that I think about it is that I can't think of a thing that is more patriotic to want to do than to improve your country. And what on earth are any of us doing, talking about, obsessing about, going on and on and on about politics? All the people that I know who are involved in politics, uh, I just write about them. Poor sods, they're trying to actually bloody do it. What is more patriotic than trying to improve your country? Uh, Nothing, but there are overt symbols which people on the left politically, for historical reasons, have uh, struggled with, with the exception of Canada. Firstly, I want to say patriotism is pride in an accident, right? Patriotism is like I was born English, right? But I, I did nothing to earn that. I did nothing to earn that. And many, many people who've come into the United Kingdom who weren't born in the United Kingdom have done much more for the nation than I ever have. Many, many people working in the NHS, many, many people working in cleaners and 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 driving buses and but people like you know members of your family Royfield who came from Jamaica and, and improved the country so the so patriotism to me it does have some poisonous elements and I certainly I, Emma is right in what she says you can be socially liberal person feel patriotic feel that your country has value and that's correct and I agree with her on that but the problem with what the Labour Party is being asked to do is being asked to perform a plastic patriotism by consultants and being told to do what the Conservative government is doing which is stand in front of Union Jack all the time and say I really love my country. Keir Starmer who previously was a Republican and said you know he he thought that the Queen should be got rid of when he was younger He, he doesn't believe that anymore and that's fine but now he says the royal family are a beacon of hope, which nobody <laughs> believes he believes. So it's farcical. What he's trying to do is outflank the Conservatives on something that people know they actually believe. Mick's absolutely right. You cannot do patriotism as a branding exercise. You can't fake into it. You've got to understand what you mean by it and your, what values you are championing for your country in the way that you believe and then make that your patriotic story. And that's what I, that's the journey I've gone through. 
And that's what I think, if the Labour Party just tries to splash on a load of red, white and blue paint, it won't work. If on the other hand, they go through that journey, then they have a chance to connect properly. Yeah. And how patriotic is it that the Conservative Party takes huge amounts of money from from Russian oligarchs that it then enables to take over parts of the country? That's not patriotism. And actually, if the Labour Party had any guts, it'd say, do you know what? The Tories aren't patriots. Here's why they're not. And here's how we're going to make the country better for everyone. And the thing I just wanted to just say that connects to our previous point very quickly is the way that you stop, you, you fight conspiracy theories and all this kind of stuff, what you actually have to do is help poor people, help people who are suffering, improve their material conditions. And this stuff will not be as compelling. That's what you have to do. Mick, I couldn't agree with you more. But there are many people who are natural Labour voters that thought that uh, the Labour Party, I would say wrongly, you would say wrongly, wasn't standing up for Britain. And it's one of the reasons why we had Brexit. Jane, you're a political scientist. It is fair to say that globally left of centre parties have a more troubled relationship with whether it's soft or hard images of nationhood and nationality, don't they? By definition, left of centre politics is a little bit more internationalist. Would I be totally out there by saying that? No, I don't think so. I think that's a function of the fact that there's much more a conception of discipline to a particular type of order in conservative parties. That speaks just not only with respect to what draws individual people to conservative, like this is the way it is. And and someone mentioned something about the new Patriot Party in the United States or the development of that being uh, based in white, being white, Christian, a mother, married. I mean, these are all strong elements of white heteropatriarchy. Make a quick point about the, the Labour Party, if you, if I might. Um, I want to dress up for the Labour Party because I know they're talking about rebranding. We have seen this in the United States. Uh, for those of you who are old enough, George H.W. Bush, all through his campaign, the Democrats don't say the Pledge of Allegiance. We Republicans say the Pledge of Allegiance. He won on that in no small part. And then as soon as he was elected, never mentioned the Pledge of Allegiance again. So patriotism is, um, is catnip to much of the electorate. And I think that it's dangerous and foolish at this point to those of us who recognize it as such. But um, but I do like, I haven't worn a tie in a long time, but I thought I'd say that with, with the appropriate attire. Because they did say they were going to dress up, they need to dress a little more a little more smartly. Yes, yes, yes. So do we. I'm, you know, here I am. So I talked about um, internationalism being a, a constituent part of left of centre politics. And generally, generally, um, left of centre parties have... Um, a more trickier time um, wrapping themselves up with the flag of their country. That's not the case in Canada now, is it, uh, Laura? And why is it that, let's say, the New Democratic Party or the Liberal Party are much more comfortable with overt signs of Canadian nationalism? Well, you know, if you look at a, a poll that was done a number of years ago asking Canadians who was their most iconic Canadian, who best represented the Canadian brand, because truly, as long as I was growing up, we had a, a, our own identity 
conflict, right? We didn't know who we were as a country. We didn't want to be patriotic. We weren't flag waving. We didn't like that whole America stuff, right? So Canadians were always shy to say, I'm a fierce Canadian because we didn't, we didn't kind of like that. We don't kind of, it's not kind of how we are, right? And so they did this poll and they said, you know, who would be the iconic Canadian? And the answer was the person who put in uh, universal healthcare, right? So uh, the, the defining connective tissue, if you will, of Canada is our healthcare system. You hear us cheer about it whenever a host on a late show TV show brings it up or whenever it's mentioned around the world. We are so much less about identifying ourselves as left, right, socialist, capitalist, truly. I understand all of those labels and some people might adhere to them, but generally most Canadians, we're kind of like, you know, are we treating people well? Do they have health care? Are we not being assholes to the world? You know, that's we're sort of a little bit more aligned with values than we are with labels. And that may change at some point, but that's why I think we're comfortable with being Canadians because we're usually on the index of the happiest place on earth to live or in the top three. We know we've got it good. We don't want to be jerks to the world. We know we've got money and resources. So, you know, to me, it's just Canadians are proud to be Canadian as long as Canada as long as the Canadian brand represents good values, values of community and kindness, not socialism, communism, left-wing, right-wing, as long as we're good, then we're happy to put up the flag. As soon as we start acting shitty, we're not going to be putting the flag in front of our doors. That's my best assessment of it. But isn't that just a really good um, brand expression of what Canada is? You've got plenty far-right people. You've got plenty, you know, the rebel came out of Canada, the far-right media organization, stuff like that. you're, You're kind of expressing Canada's best instinct but of course there are plenty of people in your country who are you know as mad racist as anyone in the in 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 in, in i have in sat on panels with the person who created the rebel before he created it and i have challenged his very ethos right uh so it's not that we don't have a spirited debate in this country about what it is to be canadian but it's not it's just not in this sense of the American, I'm, you know, God, country, whatever crap. It's like, I'm, I'm proud of Canada as long as Canada is making me proud. As soon as Canada starts to suck, I'm going to throw out the party in charge or I'm going to disrupt the system. That's just how we roll. What I would say, though, I think it's a neat link on from, from my thinking about this. And, and like Emma, I'm some very obviously I, I'm left of centre, but I, I, I don't mind being overt. I don't mind overtly supporting England when it comes to the World Cup. And, and there are some lefties that are not down for that. Um, I think what the not left- many though. That's a canard. Listen, no, no, mate, mate. <laughs> my ex-wife was one of those. Um, as somebody who um, doesn't mind to say that I like soft totems of Britishness, like a cup of tea. I think the Labour Party needs to remind people that its key institution, which helps bind the country together, which the vast majority of Brits get behind, the National Health Service was created by somebody who's left of centre. We have to thank Bevin and Clem Attlee, two great Britons who just happened to also be uh, Labour uh, members. Of- please don't, oh, oh, by the way, please don't call Bevin left of centre. He was left. He was left. Mate, mate. <laughs> Labour, the whole point is that there was the Labour values that were elected and then they implemented the this. Yeah, it was, it was right. It's a wor- it was a workers' party. It wait was a, a minute, workers' party. Wait a minute, wait a minute. In, right, and this is a... Stop claiming everyone for left of centre. Listen, 
this is going to completely and utterly make, make the edit here because I think you're missing the point here, right? The Labour Party has historically been scared of saying that the that certain totems of the country which everybody gets behind it created right and that is the reason why apparently that's bollocks that didn't happen during the blair era they weren't afraid of talking about the nhs what are you talking about no but what are you talking about historically you you are you have swallowed right-wing talking points which you are now regurgitating as if not they're not all, right-wing not talking points. And the all. problem with this is, the problem with this is, one of the things that we haven't talked about tonight is there is another two Are we parties. not going to be able to? This no, there is a tech party so and a media party, and they are both the parties of capital, and they affect the way that the political discussions happen. We have spent a lot of time on this podcast talking mm. about reality-based politics. It is in no way a reality-based political statement to say that the Labour Party shies away from claiming the NHS as its own. Anyone who has seen any Labour Party political broadcast ever, I mean, I think possibly since before the NHS actually existed. Okay, you, I, I, I didn't actually finish my point before before I was interrupted. And my point was this. So rudely interrupted. It's a key British institution to be proud of is the point I was going to get go on to make. Right? We get accused of being lefties of not caring about um, these totems of British culture, which may, basically means waving the flag. Waving the flag for me also means being proud of the NHS. You didn't let me finish. You didn't but let me finish. So wait a Mick, stop, because we're never going to get to the end no, of the show. You get to finish, you get to finish. But it's, if you frame things in such a madly distorted way, you, and actually what we've got to stop doing is treating their arguments as good faith. Now, what I'm and I saying, say that in a kind way. I could Mick, be much less Mick, kind. Mick, Mick, people equate patriotism in a very linear way. Flag waving, supporting the Queen, uh, being behind our boys in the army. It's Why much more, there are much more things that bind us. And all I'm saying is we need to, we need to remove that flag waving and say, you know what? Love the NHS. We created the NHS. That's a way of showing our support to the country. That's what I'm saying. Anyway, it's good that we disagree and we can res still respect each other afterwards. Ultimately, in many ways, we agree, Royfield, as you know we, from yeah. our many private we conversations. But all I'm trying to say is from someone who, because I analyse the media every single day, mm. these arguments are twisted. And I'm, I'm a bit tired of us treating the right as if they are arguing in good faith and as if they should be allowed to define what patriotism. Oh, 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 the man who just said, can I finish my point? Go ahead, finish it. Let's get out of here. But I will just say I didn't get. This is the Labour Party themselves commissioning a document which says that we need to embrace totems of, of nationalism, which fundamentally I think are old fashioned. It does, it does. No, but it's a it's a Labour Party taking advice from a consultancy, and that consultancy exists in a political climate that is heavily oh. influenced by a predominantly right wing press, which acts in the interest of global capital. But but Mick, I think well, I think with them proving that 
we're arguing over <laughs> the hair's breadth worth worth of difference because at no point did I say we should be waving the Union Jack and that makes us all patriots. I didn't say that at all. Anyway, any, anyway, so actually our points are incredibly close, incredibly close, and it's basically about how you come come at it, really. Uh, Updating the conversation, the QNUT just got kicked out of the two committees in Congress she was sitting on, so the vote passed. Yay! All right, okay. Uh, do we... <laughs> All right, so um, we're going to have to come back onto that because we. I want to. Final bombshell. It's called the Union flag when it's on land. Oh, stop it! Clever clogs. <laughs> all right, all right. You don't realise is Royfield is on a ship at all times. That's just the background. <laughs> <laughs> America is crippled by partisanship and political rancor, but nearly four in 10 US adults, some 38% identify as being politically independent. Is the country in need of political realignment? Jane Jun, this is in your purview, surely. Right. Now, that's a good question. Of course, there when people realign or de-align from a party is generally speaking, when voters do so, it's generally speaking, one of the signs of realignment. It's. I don't know if I will give you an answer to the normative question of should this be happening, but is it happening? And I'm going to say yes, that it's happening. This is sort of a long realignment as opposed to a short, quick one that takes place within the context of a single realigning election. So if you think about the United States, most scholars will agree that there's only been five. So only five uh, basic realignments, the last one being 1932 with FDR. But at the same time, I think that it if we just step back and see where we are in 2020, it looks to me like the 20, the 2008 election with Obama is probably the critical election that sets up this realignment, which isn't to say it wasn't happening before, but it is to say that that's probably the, the critical aligning election. All realignments need to have something of a structural disruption, the Civil War, the Great Depression, globalization in this case. Technological change is a second feature, which is usually something like really big, like the Industrial Revolution, the development of birth control, and of course, communication technology, which allows members of Congress from any party, left, right, or Q, to in fact get their message out, factual or otherwise. A third feature is that realignments require elites, institutions, parties to become successfully disruptive. And so you need things like the Tea Party, or in this case, potentially Q or the new Patriot Party. But crucial among this is the voters need to change. How have voters changed in the United States? They have. Look at every single realigning election and you will see population change in voters. And in this case, it happens to be the case that now more than a third of the American population is a person of color, right? Voters of color make up more than a quarter of actual voters. In addition to that, I'd like to ask you whether women or men are the modal voters in American politics. Women. They are. And they have been since 1964. So a majority of voters in the American electorate are female. That tells me that we're at the at the point of realignment. It's happening right now. So when we see this kind of disruption and madness, as many of you so have so aptly described, it is political change right in front of your eyes. It's like watching if you have children or you see, you know, your nieces and nephews grow up, you know, when you when when you see them every day, you don't see it. 
But when two or three years goes by after the pandemic, you're like, wow, what happened to you? You're like a foot taller than you were last year. That's what's happening to the United States now. They're in the middle of realignment. And what do I see? I see that there will be a left party, something more like the um, progressive left of the Democratic Party. There will be a center party that consolidates. And I'm sorry to say it, but it's like the Pelosi's and McConnell's of this world. And then there'll be a far right party. I do think that the both sides are going to splinter. The question is who will be dominant prior to then. It's probably, in my view, going to be the um, the Democrats and the current structure be the Democrats who are who are ahead for the moment. But let's not think that there couldn't be a disruption on the left. There will be. I mean, I wouldn't even call all Democrats left. I just call them that party will disrupt as well, but it won't disrupt until after the Republican Party has splintered itself. Jane, I can't imagine there's any political rancor in your country. You have such a calm, soothing manner and way of speaking that surely everything is all right w- with the world. I feel more relaxed just, just hearing speak. My question was, are the parties splintering, but also do you, do you see potential for states to split? There are cons- consistently, um, particularly in California with the super rich sort of pushing for a, a state, a break off of the state. You know, are the United States going to stay united? Is that is that a potential problem? Um, California tried to exit a few years ago after 16. I think it's it's unlikely. Uh, the last time that this happened was 1860, and there was a civil war that was fought in order to keep the union together. I mean, some people on the left would be delighted if Florida and Texas decided to leave, but um, that may not be the case. I, I think it's unlikely. I think that those battles will take out take hard in the same way that they do at the federal level. They'll just be, take place um, 50 different ways. You see it happening already. I just want to redirect you back, though, to think about like all of why is it that the people are doing this? What's wrong or what's up with that 75 million people who affirmatively voted for Donald Trump in 2020? And I don't think that for a minute we should look past the, the basic um, fault line, which is around who controls politics? Is it the white heterosexual man? It is not anymore. And the white heterosexual man is being given a run for his money in a way that he has not prior to this. So I think it's always important to bring our discussion back to the importance of race and gender and what we're seeing in politics now. It is about whether or not the iron fist of patriarchy, the iron fist of white heteropatriarchy remains in power. When it is challenged, this is what you see. And what what do you see? It's very interesting that we began this discussion with two women in the Republican Party representing two apparently quite distinctive sides. There are two white women who, in their Republicanism, are defending without question in their own distinctive ways. Without question, they are defending the power of white heteropatriarchy. Very powerfully said. I, I think Liz Cheney, she would say, though, wouldn't she, that uh, to sign up for her view of America, you just have to sign up for her view of America. Whereas uh, Marjorie Taylor, Taylor Greene will say that you are excluded because you are a Muslim. She said Ilan Omar should not be in Congress because she's a Muslim. People who are uh, not white there is some suspicion of, as to their true patriotism, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas Liz Cheney would say that you need, as long as you you 
you sign up to some tenants, you qualify to be, whereas the difference would be that uh, the wackadoo QAnon congresswoman would say that you are absolutely excluded, you know, because you are gay, for argument's sake. Um, as, a, as a parting message, I would say, um, in relative terms, it may seem that way, but I'd like to second mix and Emma's comments that, in fact, the Republican Party of Reagan, of Cheney, is not as forgiving as you think it is and not as inclusive. They have their own tent inside of the bigger tent that they say that they have. And uh, people of color, Muslims, gay people are not are not uh, welcome. I would just say that they do want to get the get those people to vote for them, but they don't want to change anything about what they do. I mean, that's why why Trump spent so much time talking about black voters is he wants them to come into, like Jane said, that outer tent, but but without, you know, so-called, quote, corrupting the uh, the inner inner workings of the party. I suspect we're all in violent agreement about that characterization of the Republican Party. <laughs> it hurts me just to say Mitt Romney said something somewhat sane and that a Cheney won a vote. I mean, come on. <laughs> Does America need a Patriot Party to push then moderate Republicans to reform into this If what Jane says is going to happen, happens, i.e. the Republican Party splits into into two in the next two or four or maybe six years, whatever, but relatively soon, how long will the Democratic Party be in the political hegemony for? How long can it maintain its core integrity whilst the right is fighting like rats in a bag? Uh, Jared Kobeck, on, on to you. And then if it can maintain its kind of integrity, um, what can we hope to accomplish with this new Democratic Party? If the Republican Party splinters into two parties, which I'm less convinced of, then yeah, I think you could probably expect something similar happening in the Democratic Party. Because right now, you know, the last four to five years of the Democratic Party is arguably two very distinct political positions unified by their opposition to Trump. With Trump gone, then you just have the incoherence of a party that does have Ilhan Omar and does have Nancy Pelosi. And those people are not really that in alignment. Uh, So I could see it. I mean, how that actually works is beyond me because this is a government that fundamentally even though the founders pretended like it wasn't happening is set up to be a two-party system jared you've answered a question which i didn't quite ask you right but Mm -hmm. interestingly eric marcus was vigorously shaking his head saying i do not agree so eric tell us why uh jared uh, has got this all wrong i don't think that nancy pelosi and Ilhan omar or aoc are that far they're all lined up to deliver this $1.9 billion package that the new president has promoted. I see the Democrats actually solidifying, moving left, as we have already, led in no small part by Joe Biden, 78 years old. Um, I disagree. I think as the Republicans crumble, the Democrats will will be stronger and push uh, forward with with um, with their uh, their agenda. A cause for celebration. Last week on Friday and Saturday in the UK, over one million people received the COVID jab. 
Terry Malloy, is this one thing we can at least applaud our government for? At least they've got this bit of their COVID policy right. Uh, no, we can applaud the NHS, and I will applaud the NHS. I had my jab today, and the the the, the, the rollout of it by all the staff in the GP surgery I went to was exemplary. But the government has time and time and time again buggered it up. And to say that the rest of the world is quite happy to run the Pfizer vaccine and three weeks later give it a second dose on their instructions. No, the British government said, no, it's going to be fine for 12 weeks. We don't know that. Because again, they go they go on the science that, that makes them feel good and part of their agenda. So no, I won't... I uh, won't applaud the government. I'll applaud their their preparation in getting the uh, to buying the pieces for rolling out. But it's the NHS that has rolled it out, and they're the ones to be applauded, not clapped on the on the front doorstep at six o'clock, but given more money to do the job that they were meant to do and were asked to do by Bevan way back. And something of which we've always been proud and which is slowly being eroded by this Tory government. A quarter of people in France, Germany and the US say they may refuse the COVID vaccine, uh, a survey has found. Um, and this is this number rises exponentially when you look at young people. Um, who's got any ideas of how we can help to combat COVID denial? Laura Babcock. Well when people are restricted from doing stuff they want to do. I mean, if you're, if you're not clever enough to take the science and, and try to protect the people that you love, and if you, or whatever reasons you have for your denial issues, uh, when you can't go anywhere. I mean, Trudeau had all the major airlines ground their flights to Southern destinations because a million Canadians still traveled over the holidays. And they're like, no, actually you can't. No pleasure travel is going to happen in this country. When people start to realize they can't get into their favorite place, they can't do their favorite thing because they haven't been vaccinated, you know, maybe they'll come around. I, I always think it comes right down to personal convenience. And, and when their convenience is taken away, some of their ideology slips away as well. When I traveled to Rwanda um, uh, a few years ago, I had to have a card that showed that I had a yellow fever vaccine. Couldn't get into the country without it. I think that we should have a card or, or some other, other way of recognizing that we've had a vaccine and you shouldn't be allowed on, at least in the US, any uh, transportation that crosses state lines, which the federal government can control, you cannot cross state lines without having been vaccinated, period. Clint Losey. I think we're also pretty lucky that this vaccine, that, that all the vaccines are so very effective so that people who do want to get vaccinated and people who are, you know, taking taking those steps are not at the mercy of the people who don't want to get vaccinated. Uh, a vaccine that, that is, you know, only 40 or 50 or 60 percent effective, you really are relying on herd immunity. Um, but the folks who do get the vaccine at least have the assurance that that they are not hoping that everybody around them also got it. And so, you know, I think I think that there are just a lot of people who can get the vaccine and go on with their life. And then we can kind of worry about how to get the stragglers because it is an important public health question, but it's not quite as life and death as if the vaccines were less effective. Emma? Uh, how we do, it, I don't know, stick it in marijuana and legalize the stuff. Um, <laughs> Canadians already want it. You don't need to bribe us. <laughs> Just take the bloody vaccine. I need a shag. That's all I can say. You're totally right wing about this, but you know, a lot of the hospitals are saying, well, we can't treat you because you're obese. We can't treat you because you refuse to give up smoking. We can't treat you because you will not stop drinking. 
we can't treat you because you you won't take the vaccine. It's there, and then we'll treat you. Yeah. Um, just be fascist about this. Exterminate them all. It's very simple. <laughs> Did I use up my time so I didn't get to talk about the vaccine? <laughs> uh, Mick, have you been vaccinated against me having a say now? <laughs> How effective is it? Ninety-five percent effective, Mick. Folks, if you have been in violent agreement, disagreement, or moderately irked by anything that anyone has said today, why don't you go into midatlanticshow.com and hit the uh, voice tab icon? Uh, the hashtag is I agree with Mick. Great hashtag. Go for it. Started <laughs> it on Twitter. To use the hashtag on a voice note. Feel free, Emma Burnell. So Twitter for that as well. And the hashtag is hashtag I agree with Mick. If you agree with Mick. Well, hashtag get Emma a shag. You're a baby. What? <laughs> You're a baby. And you know what? I'm putting up both hashtags. So have at <laughs> Folks, uh, please join us online, whether it's on Twitter whether it is by just uh, putting your voice to a message so we can play it on, on the next show. But I would like to thank Mick Wright, my bete noir, Emma <laughs> Burnell, my sister from another mother, Laura Babcock, my Canadian best friend, Jared Kobeck, my award-winning author friend over there in Los Angeles, Eric Marcus, the gay man that I would with if I was gay. Oh, oh my gosh, there's you as well, Clint. <laughs> you can have a threesome, Roy Field, once the vaccine's done. You guys hear about that 81 person orgy that they broke up in France because they violated the COVID protocols? I mean, yes, yeah. it, was, it, was, it was the Turkish minister was there, wasn't he? It was part, part. You're polyamorous, aren't you, Roy Field? To go back to our last show of All last right. year. Goodness, I, I thought I was doing so well with, with my outro. Uh, so let me go back. Eric Myers over there in New York. Clint Losey, my new best friend over there in Washington, D.C. And we also had Jane John, political scientist, sage, an all-round calm radical in Los Angeles. That has been your Mid-Atlantic panel. Yeah. Whew, I need a proper light. Oh, gosh, Terry Malloy. Oh, shower. <laughs> Did I forget you, Terry? Yeah. And of course, last but not least, award-winning, acclaimed British actor, Terry Malloy, who has frightened us as children and entertained us as adults. As a child, if you loved Doctor Who, you was frightened of the Daleks and he was king of the Daleks, he was the lord of the Daleks, Terry Malloy over there in Norwich. I think he's technically emperor of the Daleks. That is accurate, man. No, he's not technically. He's technically creator of the Daleks. Creator of the Daleks. He's, they, but isn't but isn't he the emperor of the Daleks and no, one of his? No, there is an emperor Dalek. Yeah, that's right. No, no, there's an emperor. What? What? Terry, you are. Oh yeah, yeah, no, no please. Terry, go. He pretends to be the emperor when you, when it suits him. A bit like you know a lot of politicians in this world. Right. Um, and um, no, but he's basically creator. And he basically spends his time creating bigger, better, more dynamically destructive Daleks because the ones that he created get he disappoint him and they turn against him. So he gets rid of that lot and gets a new lot in. Were you in remembrance of the Daleks? Me inside that. Yeah, that that is like a high point. 
you know, I, I call that the Texas barbecue. Nothing to do with Texas. But it's like one of those barbecues with a flipped up lid. And uh, <laughs> on the grill, there's Gavros's head frying away nicely. You know? Yeah, I was in that. Yeah. Uh, it's a, it's, you're great in it. That's an amazing piece of television. It is a high point. In the cast list of Remembrance of the Daleks, Terry is listed as Terry Malloy, the Emperor Dalek slash Davros. So he has been the Emperor Dalek. Oh, he's not? No, not at all. In the cast list, the Emperor Dalek is credited as Roy Tromley. Well, you're listed in the Wikipedia on the cast list as that. But Roy Tromley is an anagram of Terry Malloy. Ah. So they'd all say, oh, the Emperor Dalek is Davros. So nice. Rid of that, nice. you put in Roy Tromley as the as the, the actor played. So I've now got this alter ego who's constantly moaning about the fact that Terry Malloy took his career from him. Do you see, this should That's be the podcast. This should have been the podcast. It's much better. That and you I'm, yelling at Royfield. I mean, it's just Terry that. talking about Davros and me shouting at you for 15 to 20 minutes. That, that is chef's kiss. Folks, just before I go, I can say that already on Twitter, we have the hashtag I agree with Mick and hashtag help Emma shag. Don't forget, folks, left of centre politics is right politics. Take care. Look after yourselves. Tatty bye. Hi, Royfield. I love you. I love you. (laughs) We only treat those we love that way. Come on. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com